Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 140. This week, Ken and I are speaking with the leadership team responsible for the upcoming Brown University Performing Arts Center. Joshua Ramos of Rex, Carl Giegold of Threshold Acoustics, and David Rosenberg of Theater Projects. The Brown University Performing Arts Center is a formally stunning project designed by Rex for the Brown University campus in the relatively small town of Providence, Rhode Island. The exterior of the almost 100,000-square-foot building consists of a large monolithic mass clad in aluminum with a cantilevered glass-encased 13-foot-tall clerestory jutting out from the lobby level, covering a lower-level outdoor public space. The interior of the art center, however, is where the magic happens. To facilitate the university's requirement to host performances for a variety of needs and audience sizes, Rex and his team of theater and acoustic specialists designed a transformable concert hall that can accommodate five completely different configurations, from a small experimental sound cube for media performances to a 625-seat symphony orchestra hall. Our conversation starts with Joshua Ramos describing the conception of the project, starting with the client's brief. So I think the the impetus for the project is really twofold. Starting in 2017, Brown created something called the Brown Arts Initiative, and its focus is uh, to to become the 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 school or, or to, to support Brown becoming the school for any student who wants to fully integrate performing, literary, and visual arts into a liberal arts education. And explicitly, that meant that they wanted to create a, a platform to support all things experimental and cutting edge in the arts at the university, and also to uh, enable there to be cross-disciplinary work and research and creation, not just amongst the various arts uh, disciplines at Brown, but really any academic pursuit. Um, so that that was one clear thrust or mandate, and it, and it really was, I think, the what was the the genesis of the project at present. However, there's been a, a, a long-standing need identified by the university. It, in, in fact, so long-standing, literally we can cite references as far back as like 50 years, that they need a large ensemble space, particularly for the Brown University Orchestra, which is a 105-piece symphony orchestra that often performs with an 80-person chorus. And that that student orchestra is very good, and yet they really have no suitable venue for them. And, and in fact, un, the university, for all of its incredible talents and and success, there's been this identified historic void that it doesn't have a space really appropriate to to the symphony orchestra and chorus. And so we were asked, starting in the beginning of 2000, actually it was the summer of 2017 i think so the the three firms represented by the three of us here were engaged by the university to start a a visioning session to figure out what kind of animal would would happily uh, accommodate both those demands and they're kind of contradictory in that the brown arts initiative wants a space that's highly flexible for smaller audiences between you know, like 150 to 350 people, um, that that has flexibility uh, acoustically, technically, and spatially. And then on the other hand, there's this demand for large ensembles, particularly the the orchestra, that has also a very high uh, level of requirement acoustically and spatially, but it's a very different one. And through that that visioning process, 
we proposed uh, an animal that doesn't really have much precedent, and, and that's to create a single space that can navigate between those very different um, spatial and acoustic demands. What was your team's initial response to the client's brief for this project? So the initial response was to create, in a way, there, there were two adequate responses. One was to say, you should build four different venues. Um, if if that's really Brown's mandate with the, with the arts initiative. Um, or when we were able to look at the actual use schedule with Brown, became apparent that any one of those four venues would not really get full occupancy, even partial occupancy. So it became more viable to propose creating a single venue that could, through automated and manual flexibility, be able to transform uh, amongst five basic configurations, going from quite small, a small um, experimental media space, um, all the way to a, a full uh, orchestral configuration that can seat over 500 people. And it was that uh, uh, that 500 seat um, requirement that actually unleashed uh, the potential of the project. It's not. It's very difficult to make a room variable uh, in its geometry, its footprint, its acoustic volume, um, if it gets much bigger than that. And an orchestral volume is, is uh, or a seating capacity at least might be um, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand seats. But at 500, we had a venue that was uh, small enough. Um, to be able to change it in uh, pretty complete ways to achieve these uh, uh, these various archetypes. So, so that 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 one unique condition that you know Providence obviously is a small town and the university is a small university that they really only envision the need for 500 seats and and that that was a very intentional decision on their part that if they did a bigger venue there there was a chance that they might have performances that were undersold and they would much prefer to discover that they need to have two performances sold out at 500 seats than to have a performance that has 500 people in, in, in an auditorium for 1,500. And so there, that very unusual but intentional decision to have a, a full orchestra space that only had 500 seats is what unleashed the potential of, of creating this, this new typology. And we had to test that theory. Uh, we sat down with BAI and all of the potential users and basically put up a mock-up calendar of what a typical year might look like for all of the people that wanted access to the space. And through a series of different colored post-it notes, everyone put up their, oh, I need this week in February, I need this week in November. And we were able to test this concept of a room that did multiple things, that it actually worked given the kind of programming we knew that BAI was going to do at uh, in, the, in the new venue. And lo and behold, we found they all fit. I imagine this type of flexibility and programmatic requirement of being able to adapt to different audience sizes. I imagine this is unique to theater projects, or is this is this something that is is typical? Uh, yeah, I'm not too familiar with that that uh, typology. It's a good question. We're big proponents of not doing flexibility just for flexibility's sake. Uh -huh. It must be driven by the mission of the arts institution that's going to be housed in that in that venue. We clearly are designing spaces for the future, well well beyond my retirement years, 50, 100 years in the future, and we want the building to be able to grow with the changes in technology and the changes in art form and, and the ways that the users might push the building that we can't even imagine today. Uh, but uh, the ability for a room to literally change its architecture 
to reconfigure to something different has been has been done before uh, many times actually we worked together with rex on the wiley in dallas uh, we did a project in uh, Cerritos, California, which is a multi-form theater. We did a project in Derngate in the UK. So there's a there is a, a a record of spaces that move architecture to create reconfigurable performance uh, arrangements, but not quite like this. This one is this one is highly unique, and I think that we would all agree that we give uh, Brown a majority of the credit for getting behind the concept and what they want their campus to be and how they want the room to function. I think from an architectural standpoint, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now, and not just in performing arts buildings, but museums and and other typologies of of what is appropriate flexibility or let's say a demand for a, a greater degree of flexibility. And we certainly saw in the Wiley Theater that that the notion of a universal space that can, in theory, do anything, that that wasn't going to be a good model. And so in the Wiley, we worked with the client to very clearly identify a series of limited presets that we knew that not only would be exceptional, but that could be easily transformed and that, that they would have the operational budgets to do so. So it, it was first, it was a commitment on the owner's part to invest the capital resources to do the project, to have that flexibility. And second, it was automated enough to be sure that it wasn't going to tax the institutions from an operational standpoint. And that what that building has proven is that by giving presets that they can easily move amongst, that strangely the specificity gives them real flexibility because they actually, not only do they use it, not only do they do the transformations, whereas in a universal space, you, you see time and again in all different kinds of typologies, it's a building that can supposedly transform into anything and therefore it never does anything. But if if the Wiley is a is a good test case, in the first four years of its opening, they did, I think, 28 performances in 25 configurations of which we gave them three. So it was it was proof that this idea of providing exceptional presets strangely leads to much greater ease of experimentation and differentiation than if you provide a, a black box that supposedly can do anything. And I think for a design team, that's a for us a huge measure of success. You know, them pushing the room in ways that we couldn't imagine originally. So beyond the the, the interior of the space, can you talk a little bit about the siting of the project? It seems. Uh, Spent some time over the weekend looking at the, the site, the project itself, and it's really a, an interesting uh, placement. Is, can you talk a little bit about that and the complexities therein involved? Sure. So Brown uh, fully integrated with Pembroke College, I think, in, in 1971, um, and the campuses are relatively close. I mean, I think they're four or five blocks apart. They're, you know, the, the campus proper as of, you know, 10 years ago. And then starting, I think about 10 years ago, the university started purchasing the connector tissue between the two and improving it. To, you know, the, the site that we're on, I think was a gas station in the back of an alley. And it just so happens to also be the center of a number of the university's arts buildings, the most significant of which in terms uh, in, in terms of the development of the Performing Arts Center is the Granoff Center that was uh, designed by Diller Scafidio Renfro, which is meant to be a, an arts lab. And our building is meant to be the kind of you know, the place where the research is performed or performance as research is done and the two operate uh, in tandem. And what it means is that the university can develop this site 
on what's called the walk, which is the connector, into a new university center. And given the thrust of the Brown Arts Initiative, it allows the, the university to find a new center that's really focused on the arts. So the, can you, I mean, what, what was, what I liked about the Wiley, and I think that uh, has drawn a lot of attention, is the skin. And the skin here is also very uh, evocative, very sleek, but it's still, what struck me about the building is less the skin, but more of the slice through the building and the kind of the actuation of the the interior in a way that is really it's it's a beautiful building, and I love the way that that sliver just kind of hangs out over the plaza in one area and just it looks like it just barely is sitting above grade in in the other location. Can you talk a little bit about that in the connection there? Sure. Yeah, it, it's certainly something. I've noticed in our work as we're getting older, hopefully that's a sign of maturity, is that we're we're focusing our ambitions and fewer things. And it's not to say that, it, like, it, it wouldn't be honest to say that greatly simplifies the project because the, the two moves, one of which I've just, that we've already described, which is the, the notion of the, of the radical reconfigurability of the auditorium, that's a move that has huge implications on the complexity of the project. So to say, hey, we just simplified into a few things isn't, so in terms of our of being able to articulate our energy, we've simplified it into a few things. One of them is the reconfigurability, and then the second is that is that glass clear story that slices through the project. And the former was addressing that array of needs that the university needed from ven- you know sort of venue needs, and the clear story addressed their desire, which you know they they could explain the need for, but they couldn't quite explain how to manifest it, which is the the desire that the campus invade the auditorium and, and the creation that was happening and the research that was happening on stage. And, and conversely, that what was happening on stage could bleed, literally bleed out into the campus. And so we, we took that very literally and created this pure glass insertion that runs through the building that includes all the lobby and assembly and, and, and community space that, that allows the university to congregate around the auditorium and it sweeps straight through the auditorium. And it, it, in a very, hopefully in a, in a good yet banal or banal yet good way, it, it just simply is stretched based on the environment around it. So on the Eastern side, it's pulled out 35 feet to create the proper lobby that addresses the walk and addresses the Granoff Center. On the South, it's pulled seven feet out to create what we call the promenade, which is the, the area that allows anybody in the community to sit and watch what's going on inside the auditorium. And on the West, it's pulled out 14 feet to create an assembly space. It can be used part of the lobby if desired, but its its main function is to be kind of uh, the offstage space for performers who are about to go on stage to allow them to have their you know, uh, uh, an area to aggregate and to warm up and to collect themselves before walking into the into the stage. But yet that the university still wanted even those kinds of functions to have the potential to be seen by the public, that, that the process and the creation of art was was demystified and, and expressed. Well, you know, what's so beautiful for me about when I look at the project is uh, you're, you don't realize from the renderings and through the images that how delicate, as delicately is the, the, the portions of the building that the public actually sees. There's a tremendous amount actually act- happening below the surface of the uh, of the of the building, can you talk a little bit about the challenges with that in the program? Yeah, so the site is constrained, and it's constrained for for very good reasons. You know, just contextually that that there you know there are heights limits and there are bounding limits uh, in plan, and 
the the way we were able to meet the simultaneous needs of a small flexible space with a larger orchestra space is to give it height, to give it volume. And that meant that the pure main hall chamber kind of takes up the entirety of the available volume on the site. And yet it only represents about half of the total area, not not the total volume, but the total area. And the remainder of the project includes uh, three different secondary performance slash rehearsal spaces and practice rooms and uh, instrument storage areas, percussion rooms, that sort of thing. And so because the main volume took up all the available space above grade, we had to take, well, again, not half the volume, but certainly half the surface area, plan area, and put it underneath. And and that created some problems simply because Brown sits on bedrock. And so you know, we're in a situation where we have to dig into bedrock as the first construction operation on the site and do so while being conscious and conscientious of of all the research that's happening around around the construction site in terms of, you know, to, not, not interrupting on you know experiments that have been ongoing for three or four years that suddenly you you start creating massive vibrations that might implicate that uh, impact that. So a lot of a lot of time was put into coming up with the best form of excavation that that would be have no negative impact to the to the campus at large. So one of the most Fascinating experiences for me architecturally was uh, a friend of mine was working on the Disney concert hall here in Los Angeles. And I was, I had the opportunity to, to visit the the project while it was under construction and when it was finished. And it just struck me how this building was so finely designed and detailed. It was, it, it, it reminded me, it made me feel like I was inside of a, of a musical instrument, the, just the, the, the science behind it and, and the way that the, the building was structured with, with a project like, like this one, I imagine the accommodating the flexibility and the reconfigurability of, of the space must have been very, very challenging from an architecture and an acoustic perspective. Can you talk about how you managed to to accommodate that that architecturally that reconfigurability? Actually, I'm, I, this is a good question for for Carl and David to answer. Because to be honest, um, our job as architects, I think, in terms of the of the main hall and its reconfigurability, is way simpler. Uh, than it has proven to be, or and it would logically prove to be, for for Carl acoustically and for David in terms of the theatrical technology and equipment in order to allow that transformation. Um, going back to what we said a little bit earlier at the beginning, that 500 seat, 600 seat capacity for an orchestra is at the low end. Um, it uh, defines the width of the room. Um, the width of the room between the, the glass at the stage edge is about 62 feet, which is just the bare minimum to accommodate an orchestra of 100. And it allowed the thought that that room could potentially be narrowed to something more along the lines of a classical recital hall without too much trouble. And the uh, once you narrow the room by that 20 feet to pick a round number, that if you can bring the end wall of the room towards the middle, to roll it towards the middle, that you can make a, a, a beautifully proportioned space for um, immersive audio, immersive video for experimental media. The concert hall archetype, the recital hall archetype, the proscenium theater archetype, the experimental media archetype are, are all based traditionally on rectangles. And uh, beginning with this, uh, the proportions of this room for orchestra, we realized that it was possible to to make um, um, 
sort of a, um, um, a timeless and classical form for each one of those typologies. There are European recital halls that are much loved that can be superimposed on the plan of the recital hall mode of this room. For example, and the 250-seat proscenium theater overlays pretty perfectly with the end stage, the proscenium theater mode of this building. And so what that, this particular diagram and this particular convergence of needs on the part of the users led us to is a, is a room where we could vary the intimacy of the space, make it no bigger than it needed to be for recital, no bigger than it needed to be for theater, and let the positions of the walls and the ceiling do the talking acoustically by varying the intimacy of the space. We were, by extension, varying the acoustics of the space naturally, as it were, without having to superimpose any um, crazy reflectors or, or result in a, um, a room that was too big for a certain thing, but was just calmed down enough with absorption. Wait, how do you define crazy? Well, <laughs> <laughs> things, that, things that float around inside a larger volume. Um, we're defining the volume of the space uh, for its architectural intimacy um, and for its acoustic intimacy. Um, and, uh, and in concept doing little else, the acoustics just follow on from that. And I think theatrically, we were trying to accomplish three things simultaneously. One is address how to physically move the architecture. And we're, you know, we say move as if it's no problem, but some of these things weigh hundreds of thousands of pounds. So that was, that was task number one. Task number two is how to address the acoustic variability that Carl just talked about. So overhead reflectors, adjustable acoustic draperies, all those things need to be moved and typically would fall under our purview. And theatrically, all that stuff then needed to be able to go away so that a theater production could be could be attained in the in the space. And so it's dealing with all the moving components of uh, the requirement of the room and then figuring out how to get other things out of the way so someone can hang lights or someone can hang draperies or someone can hang scenery. So it was kind of a multi, it still is a multi-pronged approach to how we're, we're dealing with all the variability in the room. So what is that process like of changing the space inside? Is there someone at the theater that will be tasked with, with doing that? Is it, is it all automated? How long, how long does it take to, to change the, the configuration of the space? That is an excellent question. Uh, as part of the early phases of this project, we felt we needed to understand and make sure that BAI understood what the labor requirement was going to be. Uh, you know, as Josh mentioned earlier, anything that's ultimately flexible, if it's not if it's not done with purpose and need, you end up it ends up not doing anything. And so it was very we were very much focused on if this room is going to be as adjustable as we have heard BAI wants it. We need to make sure they understand what that means from a labor and time standpoint. So we actually mapped out all of the all of the moves of things that are both electrically moved and manually moved, assigned a, a time frame that we thought it would take to do it and a and a person hour, you know, this will take three people three hours to do, and then came up with a total number of hours using the kind of the biggest change of a flat floor room to a uh, concert hall arrangement. And so that kind of gave us the the worst case scenario of the big move of the room. 
so that we can get BAI to understand, okay, well, you're going to need uh, someone who looks at this from a very high technical level with a very high level of expertise in rigging. There's going to be a requirement for someone who specializes in AV because of the the AV infrastructure of the space and what it can do. Uh, someone who specializes in lighting. I mean, it's a it's a staffing model that at the moment has, I think, a staff of somewhere around seven or eight people as department heads, given the amount of things that have to move and the amount of oversight that's required. So to answer your question about, is it just one single push button? No, there is clearly, uh, there's a lot of stuff that has to move mechanically because of its weight or its mass. And uh, and there's a whole bunch of safety interlocks for things like emergency stops and people and the software knowing where other elements are so nothing can be done unsafely. That is probably the the highest calling that we have is to make sure that whatever we do, we're doing it safely, understanding that the room will have uh, professional staff working in it, but ultimately there'll be students probably providing the, the day labor. So it's a mixture of manual and mechanical and the software that is being authored uh, and written specifically for this venue will prevent the kind of collisions or accidents that uh, that would happen if these systems weren't talking to each other. Great. Early in the visioning process, we, we had, I think I said that in the beginning, we, we had the the luxury of thinking together and thinking with Brown for almost four months before we started designing. And during that visioning period, it became quite clear that to meet the very demands of the university that we should create something that was kind of like a Hoberman structure, where you know all, all six of the cardinal services of the shoebox could expand or contract and, and modulate in, in two of them to take different shapes, you know, the ceiling and the floor. And then we had a you know, very serious gut check moment of, are, are we going to get them in trouble? Are we going to propose something that seems really amazing? They're going to get totally excited about it, but when it's done, it's, it's simply going to stretch them too far from a labor standpoint, labor and, and technology standpoint, and, and they just won't use it. And so we'll, we'll be responsible for, for building a big, expensive albatross for them. Um, and so we, we had a series of really intense heart-to-heart discussions with everyone at the university to make sure they really understood why we were proposing this and then also what the real implications were. One of the most exciting moments was when the university itself turned around and said, we we need all these needs met. And the alternative would be for us to build four venues and to evaluate this building in contrast to building four venues made its complexity and its the, the labor requirements seem minuscule in comparison to what the alternative would pose. And these conversations are ongoing. This is not a, this is never a one and done kind of process. So the project, where does it stand right now? Um, everything I've, it seems like, are they in the funding phase? What, what's the, are you in construction document phase, breaking ground phase? What is it? Where is it right yes. now? Yeah, yeah, everything. Um, so the, the, the project is, is getting designed and delivered uh, under the, the new IPD model, integrated project delivery model, which really briefly, it just, it, it asks owner, architect, and contractor and the entire supporting teams of those three entities to get in bed together and sign a universal contract from the outset and that everyone's on board from the beginning. So, um, you know, when, when we start collectively designing, we already had not just the structural engineer, but the, the steel supplier and, and steel subs on board discussing means and methods as we were discussing design. And, and that's true for, for all the trades. And so, frankly, it's, it's the way that 
we three would prefer to generally work and, and try to work. I think it's just that now we have a contractual apparatus that is hopefully supporting that. I, I will say that we're the, to our knowledge, we're the first really complex one-off cultural project to be done in this model. So we are a bit of, of guinea pigs in that respect. Um, I mean, that means there's a book in this process. Yeah, the exactly. <laughs> so all that to say that, that that process, you don't have the traditional design phases and you don't have the traditional transition from design phases to construction. So we are, some portions of the building are in construction documents, some are in design development, uh, and we're under construction all at the same time. It's almost like we're developing the shop drawings in real time with the people who are going to be doing the physical work. So, I mean, that's what I was going to say. You know, it's it's it sounds like it's its own performance piece in and of itself. I mean, you have all these moving parts, but that there are things that obviously can't move. So this kind of working model seems to make a lot of sense where it's like, well, this plumbing has to be here or this duct has to, you know, or this column has to be where it is. Those things can't ever really move. I mean, so it, it sounds like it makes sense to, to work this way. Mm, there are a lot of moving elements that can't really move either. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if you if there was a big sacrifice that had to be made to ensure that the uh, the integrity of the of the acoustics could be maintained to the same degree that that you would um, design a theater space that is fixed for one specific kind of spatial requirement by having to make it so adaptable. And, and um, you know, how, how did you, how did you go about kind of ensuring that, that quality? Well, first there's the, the overall diagram of the, of the building where we shape a recital hall as a recital hall. We shape a proscenium theater as a proscenium theater. We shape a concert hall for an orchestra as a concert hall. Um, and once the basic geometry is right of those forms, much of the acoustic character follows right along with it. And so in a way, the diagram went, went much, if not most of the way, towards, uh, towards yielding excellent acoustics for all of the, the typologies, all of the, the building modes. But part of that gut check moment was also put back to us, which is any form of compromise on, on the performance of these typologies wouldn't be accepted, not, not acoustically, not spatially, not technically. Um, the classical concert halls of, of Europe and some in the States, um, the recital halls are 100 or 200 or 300 years old. Many of them, all of them really built with, with construction types that are, that are archaic now with, you know, bearing walls that are three feet thick, you know, lots of heavy plaster in the, in the ceilings and on the walls. Um, things that one, we just, we just don't do anymore because of uh, uh, the realities of construction in the 21st century. But uh, they also are completely impractical when you're, when you're moving the walls and the floor and the ceiling. Um, we have to think in terms of uh, weights of materials that are actually practical to move around. The acoustic warmth, the sort of low-frequency glow around, you know, around a, a bassoon or a, um, a double bass comes mostly from the success of those traditional heavy materials, the brick, the plaster, at, uh, at reflecting low-frequency sound. And lightweight materials tend not to do that unless they're really stiff. And so we're using systems like stress skin panels, honeycomb and plywood, honeycomb and MDF, to make spaces that are inherently stiff, inherently capable of reflecting low-frequency sound without being all that heavy. 
And these are systems that have been developed in, in orchestra shell design for multipurpose venues that are much larger. We know how these, uh, uh, these materials behave, but they've never been used quite in this way to make a room that actually changes its shape on a, on a wholesale basis. A lot of the statistics and other research analysis that, that Carl does means a whole lot to him and doesn't mean a whole <laughs> lot to the rest of us. And um, certainly, <laughs> certainly doesn't make people like the head of the music department get warm, fuzzy feelings when, when if they were just recited. And so the, there's another um, tool that, that Carl and Threshold have used to great success and has, has kept the user group intimately involved in the evolution of the project is a uh, acoustic renderings uh, or what, what uh, Threshold calls oralizations. And so they've created a, a 3D acoustic model of the space and it allows users to sit in a, a sound space and put the building into different configurations, sit in different seats and put different kinds of performers that have been recorded, their, their original um, recording is done in an anechoic chamber. So when it's pumped through the 3D acoustic model, it doesn't carry any vestiges of, of the place it was recorded and allows the user groups to literally live in the space and listen to it. And as a form of verification on that, that, that they're able to really evaluate what the space may sound like, Threshold has created the exact same acoustic models for known spaces that that the faculty will have performed in and used and know intimately and allow them to take the exact same performer or ensemble and sit in any chair, for instance, in the Kimball and, sorry, uh, uh, Kimmel, and listen to it and say, okay, that gives me a benchmark. Does that sound like what I know it to expect? And if the answer is yes, it gives them a whole lot more comfort when they then go and listen to what that same performer, singer, ensemble sounds like in the non-existent, the, the virtual space of our building. And that's given them a, the ability to respond real time, not just look at graphs, but to say, okay, this, this is live enough or this is too live. Or, and also has just brought them along to be supportive of, of the process and to believe in a building that is highly reconfigurable, that, that acoustics are not going to be sacrificed. Uh, what's kind of magical about that experience is that the, our studio can hold, uh, you know, 12, 10, 12 people at a time who don't have to wear special apparatus, who can just sit down and listen together and be immersed in a way that, that still isn't really possible for a group in a virtual reality setting. And it becomes a, a really powerful experience for everybody involved. So this, the, yeah, this is fascinating. So this is, uh, I assume this is all, uh, this is all software. This is, this is a virtual, uh, model modeling, um, that, that you do, uh, do you? Yes. It, yes. This isn't physical. Does it incorporate a virtual reality component at this point or is it just, uh, uh audio? Well, it, uh, it, it incorporates, uh, um, um, interesting that you put the question that way, um, <laughs> because it is a virtual reality uh, experience. It's it's more immersive than uh, um, than any visual experience I've 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 encountered in a in a virtual reality realm. I guess my question should have been: Is there a visual component? So yeah, it is. There uh, is. It's a it's. It's fairly static at this point. It's a it's a large it's a twelve foot diagonal video screen with a projected image on it, and we can correlate the uh, visual experience from sitting in a particular seat in a concert hall with the oral experience from being in that seat as well. So you get a sense for your distance from the stage, from your distance to the to the performers, how how 
how large the figures seated on the stage are in your field of vision that correlates well with your experience in the in three dimensions. So, so if if one of the experience points is sitting on the first balcony in the recital configuration, listening to a a string quartet, we've made a rendering of that string quartet in the recital configuration from the balcony so that when the user clicks between different performers, different configurations and different seats, they're seeing as accurate a representation as we can currently give them of what their view would be like that corresponds to what they're hearing. And the next step in our technology is to develop something that's more immersive visually as well. So is this a technology that that you developed in-house? The the technology is has been around uh, for a while. Ambisonics is the the name of the uh, the approach, multi channel audio system. Ours is twenty two channels, arranged more or less in a in a dome, a hemisphere over the the, the audience area, um, with a sweet spot right at the center. The technology, just the computing power, the availability of of, of less and less expensive computing power, has made um, the renderings far more nuanced than they were even even five years ago. So we're working on the, our own recording techniques, our own adaptations of, of, of software that's already out there, and uh, refining loudspeaker positions and uh, projection techniques that uh, improve on technology that was already there. We do a lot of our own code writing. Wow, that's very cool. So a couple of questions, last questions I have for all of you is that, so the university has been around for what, um, nearly 250 years? I think so. Mm-hmm. But who's counting? <laughs> um, any trepidation going in? I mean, you know, I typically think of universities that have been around that long as very kind of stuck in their own mindset and their own way of doing things. What kind of, did it push you to, I mean, to extend that kind of trust to know that they were going to be receptive to a project of this magnitude for a university that has been around this long? I mean, it, it, everything is extend. It seems to be extending, extending your relationship. It's extending your understanding of architecture, understanding your sense of everything. And it, it's even extending theirs. And it seems like a big leap. I mean, was there any trepidation going into this process? I'm actually going to say something about that Brown that I found really fascinating. And to my knowledge, I think amongst all of the institutions of higher education in the United States that are of similar caliber, I think only Brown and MIT have a very similar, um, very compressed horizontal structure. There's not an enormous amount of hierarchy. And each of the, the the departments at the school are all equally led by the uh, you know under the domain direct domain of of the president the the um, provost and the board, so you you don't get fiefdoms and decisions that are made there are made quickly and intelligently and it actually means that the university and I've never seen this in, a, in an institution like this they make good quick decisions. <laughs> And, and stick by them. And it means that they're much more agile than a lot of other institutions that I've been exposed to of all kinds. So yes, there's there's certainly trepidation. And I will say that that working on a campus like that, I've been really surprised that, for instance, we're, we're working at the World Trade Center and for all kinds of reasons, that's incredibly loaded. I'm not as nervous architecturally about working there because it's it's a, it's a, effectively a, a new 
sight. Whereas working in Brown in the context and that it means so much to so many people for so long, there's so, so much historical context, it has a very different pressure on it. But as a client, they're really facile and, and able to make, to take educated risks. And in that respect, they're kind of the ideal client to do this kind of thing with. I, I agree. I, speaking theatrically, for me, I think the, the summation of the client being ready for this animal was in an early meeting where someone stood up and said, we think of ourselves as the creative Ivy. And that really resonated with me and that, yeah, I was, I was like, I get it. I mean, a lot of the work we do is university work. We've done a lot of Ivy League university work and I had never heard someone put such a point on it <laughs> so eloquently. And I was like, if there is an, if there is a, an Ivy League institution out there that could accept this building and everything that comes along with it, th this is it. And so the, for me, that was very, very kind of salient. So what's been the you know, it sounds like this is like a, a, a wonderful marriage, but there's always these, you know, these edges that you were kind of creeping on. What are some of those things that maybe been a pinch point for you uh, or a challenge? I mean, has the, has the public at large, what's the extended community beyond, uh, beyond the Brown and campus been like? How's that interaction been playing? No, it does figure. We, we've had several meetings with the Providence Preservation Society. Brown is very proactive with them and all their work. So the the project didn't catch anyone off guard and, and we were meeting with them before we had to design and allowed them to weigh in and you know, recognizing that ultimately Brown can do what they want on the site as of right, but they, they, they work with and need the city's support and, and maintain a good relationship. So that process has not been uh, contentious. Early on, we were actually, the, the original site was just south of the site that we're on, but it required pretty extensive amount of either demolition or relocation of historic houses. And it wasn't that Brown was trying to force that through, but it was at the time, the logical site, and therefore it raised a lot of questions that, that, that had to be discussed with the city. And then ultimately, we discussed the viability of taking those elements that I described earlier and putting them below grade, and that afforded us the ability to, to move north to the site that we're on now. And that only required the relocation of, of one house. And so, again, it wasn't contentious, but it was intense and, and ultimately required moving sites frankly, to the betterment of the project. The, the current site is a far better site and its direct adjacency to the, the ground off center is really positive for both buildings. It, it, you know, they were always intended to be a, a couplet and now they're, you know, the direct proximity means they are kind of a literal cup, couplet, not just a, a kind of operational one. But certainly that took a lot of collective effort and, and running options on different sites, which is, you know, time and energy intensive particularly when you're trying to do something as, that's already as challenging as the building is in its own right. Speaking of challenges, um, what do you foresee some of the biggest challenges or you know, delicate parts of this project to, uh, until it, you know, realization? Oh, I think our biggest challenge is just physics. <laughs> <laughs> just, just physics. So you're, you're down to the science. Now. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> the physics of weight, the physics of size. The, I mean, those are the challenges. I mean, we're, we're tackling them and solving them, but 
Those, if you ask me, what are the things that keep me up at night? The physics keeps me up at night. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to say I'm. I'm not a big fan of the Harley parade that goes right past the building. Yeah, that's not physics. Uh, keep, yeah. Keeping the sound well, out. Well, it is when you get right down to it. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember if, if Carl had addressed this now or not, but you know, essentially, the building is a is a huge bridge, right? And and because everything is moving, and because we have this clear story. And that's what I was saying early on about you know if I were if I were to say hey we just focused on two moves and therefore it's a really simple building that that's that's not true the combination of the clear story and the reconfigurability requires really serious structural gymnastics and and the way that plays out Carl has touched on to a degree is that you know we've essentially everything moves and everything has to be lightweight at the same time everything has to acoustically look like look like it has a lot of mass and that tension. His puts really serious demands on not just Carl and David and their teams, but also the the structural team of MKA and O'Day. You know, to, to essentially make a bridge structure that has super heavy. They're empirically they're super heavy. I think acoustically they're super light, and they all have to move. And the building has to stand up, and it has to stay stiff acoustically. It also stays stays stiff so that when someone walks on it, they don't feel like they're you know, that they're on some kind of rickety structure. And and that tension comes to bear on absolutely every part of the detailing of the building. Well, I was going to say the the, the glass is, uh, um, is an interesting example of that. We're using glass for um, um, acoustically isolating um, the, the theater, the main, the main hall from the Harleys um, out on Angel Street. Um, we're using it to contain the um, the energy of uh, you know 180 performers on the stage at any given time, or or a, um, a heavily amplified event. Um, we're asking the glass to provide a nice warm reflection back to the uh, to the orchestra to enable everyone to uh, to hear themselves playing on the stage, to hear each other playing on the stage to take the warmth of the audience back to the stage, you know, when, when the applause happens. And, and glass is a, you know, a non-traditional material in, in concert hall design. Um, it tends to sound glassy, as the uh, musician would put it, and that's consequence of the fact that it's usually used in the thinnest possible layers, just enough to keep the wind out you know, enough to let, the, to let the sun in. But that quarter inch of glass or that insulating glass unit lets a lot of low frequency sound out. Um, the sound of a bass doesn't really see it at all. Um, it's like having an open window rather than the glazed one. It's only by making that glass improbably thick and heavy that it starts to sound like masonry, which is what the musicians are trained to expect. And so the glass, that, uh, that sort of dance of glass that surrounds the orchestra that you can see in plan is made up of two-inch thick glass that will sound as if it were several feet of masonry as, uh, as, as the, the, the orchestra plays and generates its full frequency sound. And it moves and it floats off the floor. Exactly. Right. Wow. Exactly. So it's light and it's heavy all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, on our podcast, Ken has a, uh, a famous, uh, you know, last question that he asks his guests, which are, which includes, what are you listening to? But I, 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 I'd like to kind of reposition this question for the three of you. When you envision this project being finished, who, who do you imagine uh, sitting in this theater watching perform? I guess who would, who would be, who would be your, your, uh, what would be your dream performance in this theater? Oh, good question. Wow. 
I think, are, I think the, the real question is, yeah, who is, is <laughs> who would what, you? what, what four performers would you like to do in yeah. four successive performances on four successive nights? Yeah. For, uh, yeah, for me, if the, it's like desert Island discs, would you take, you know, <laughs> I mean, if the, if the Brown, um, orchestra and the Brown music students come out on that stage and play the first notes and, and, and smile, that's, that's what I want out of this building more than anything else. Mm. I'd like to see a very site-specific opera, theater piece, music piece written for the room, so that it could really utilize all of the things the room could do. It that would be me. That would be really cool. Mm -hmm. I think to go in there and see, you know, like maybe something moves a vista because it's integrally part of the piece and not just eye candy. That would be yeah. That would be great. Right. And that the, in the experimental media mode, uh, you know, a compelling enough immersive enough visual and, and oral experience that just makes you forget the world. Something we know from, from the Wiley is that getting them to, which wasn't a problem in the Wiley and then gave great dividends. And therefore we've been very clear both with, with the client of the Perlman and now, now Brown is, is make sure in your inaugural season or seasons that in the first couple of years that you really push the limits of the room that if if you soft if you start soft if you start using it conventionally and say you know we're gonna we're gonna just do a bunch of test runs and we're gonna be safe to make sure everything works, chances are they're that's going to be no that's going to establish the use patterns, and so encouraging Brown and and you know, Butch Ravan who's the head of BAI doesn't need this to be explained to him. I think he was already wired very much to do this on his own, but they're already planning the first season and trying to think what are the wackiest ways, what's the, the most out of our comfort zone we can push the room in as many different ways during the inaugural season so that we establish the, 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 the limits, the, the limits or the lack of limitations on the space as opposed to starting safe. That's funny because typically we would not recommend that because you know, you're getting a brand new building and you're pushing it to its limits and you really haven't fully understood how to operate it. And so, I, although if I've had clients, if they're ready for it, then I say, open this, open the gates and let the horses run. Let's, let's see what they can do here. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think BAI is there. I think they're very much, I think they're, I think they're very anxious for this space and would love to see what they mm -hmm. can, how they can test the limits. I think they'll throw everything they have at it. <laughs> <laughs> On opening night, yeah, that would be amazing. Well, this this project is is really really fascinating, uh, and it goes so much deeper than than it seems from the surface. Beautifully designed building, and it sounds like there's just some incredible science behind the um, the interior, both physically and acoustically. Thanks so much for uh, telling us more about this project. We're we're really excited to uh, watch it develop, and um, I, I hope I get a chance to to experience a concert there. In in at in all four different uh, theater theater types, that'd be great. Yeah. And plan some spending time. Uh, plan that, plan on spending some time in Providence. <laughs> yes, thank yes. you. All. Now I I have a reason now. Okay, thanks again. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Our thank pleasure. You. Well, that's our show for today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account Arc Sessions or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.